0: to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional, and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Ruth Matthewson, Delia Burge, and Patricia Bishop to discuss wool and local fibers in Nova Scotia. Ruth is the owner-operator of Harmony Woolen Mill and manager of Woolies of Upper Brookside Farm. She raises North Country Chevrolet sheep For breeding stock with the wool being an added benefit. Delia learned to spin in the 1960s, which led her to a lifetime of working with sheep and wool. She moved to Nova Scotia in the late 1970s and began raising sheep primarily for wool, which was then considered laughable. Delia has had many wool breeds, but now raises purebred rare breeds, Wensleydales, prized for their outstanding fleeces. She has taught weaving, spinning, and dyeing at various venues and is a founding member of Water Street Studio Cooperative craft shop in Picto, where she sells her weaving, spinning, knitting, felting, and anything to do with wool. Patricia Farms, along with her husband and business partner, Josh Olton, they specialize in certified organic vegetable production, as well as some fruit crops, pasture animals, and since 2011, flax for fiber. Taproot Farms offers a year-round CSA with over 150 members. In addition to the farm, Josh and Patricia run a small-scale spinning mill spinning yarn from flax wool and from the sheep on their farm and also provided custom milling services. Josh and Trish got into growing flax back in 2011 while they're trying to sort out of what to do with their nettles that are on their farm to offer textiles in addition to fruit, vegetables, eggs, and meat to the community. It has been an adventure ever since. Okay. So welcome Patricia, Ruth, and Delia.
1: Hi, I'm Ruth Matthewson. Thank you. For, I'm so excited to be joining this podcast. And thrilled to be talking about wool and other fibers. I have been in the wool industry uh, all my life. So we've had the same breed of sheep for over 50 years, the North Country Cheviots, and um, got into the wool business because there was no value in that particular breed of sheep's wool. And so we make bedding and it's kind of exploded from there. Um, I moved back home and my mother was still making comforters after 35 years, and I bought a Belfast mini mill, which is set up here on the farm. So that was in 2011, and we started processing right away, uh, custom processing for other shepherds so that they could also add value to their farms. And it's just kind of gone from there. Delia's taught me how to spin, and hopefully at some point maybe how to weave, and she taught me how to knit. And there are now umpteen different small and a couple of large fiber shows in the province sisterhood fibers being a big push for the for the industry and uh, recently this year with the help of Patricia there is a flaxmobile going around that has what 15 or so farmers that are growing flax in addition to Patricia's fields and I'm pretty excited because they're going to be harvested this coming week whenever the rain stops. I just love wool. I love everything about it, the texture, the amazing properties that it has from moisture wicking to thermal regulating to keeping slugs out of your garden etc etc and so I'm going to pass it over. Thanks!
2: Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate to talk about fiber. I love fiber so much, so I'm really happy that I get to be here with all of you to talk about it. I am here in uh, at the farmhouse in Port Williams, Nova Scotia, and I got involved in fiber around 2011 uh, when we were trying to figure out what we we're going to do with all the nettles that are on our farm. And thought, huh, in addition to offering vegetables, fruit, meat and eggs from our farm let's offer textiles and from that moment onwards the learning has has opened up and the opportunities and the meeting of new people um, and so now we have sheep and we grow flax and we have a spinning mill here in Greenwich Nova Scotia where we're spinning yarn and we did make clothes but now we're focusing more on yarn and household textiles
3: um, I'm Delia Birch, and I'm happy to spend the afternoon talking about wool with other woolly people and I've been a wool addict since the, actually since the 60s because I learned to spin in Vancouver and that was the beginning of the end because everything else uh, changed and From learning to spin, then I wanted my own wool because it was really difficult to get wool. So I moved to Nova Scotia in 79. I've had sheep since then. Various wool breeds, which at the time that we started raising sheep for wool, everyone thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. It took a long time before anyone sort of could see that maybe there was something in raising wool and looking after it and doing a good job. So the breed I have now is a rare breed, uh, Wensleydale, which is my ultimate sort of wool. It's not the sort of wool for everyone or or for every purpose. So I think I've learned throughout all the years of dealing with different wools that each breed of sheep has its own type of wool to be used. I am definitely a wool addict and and spin and weave and have a craft shop in Picto, which is cooperative, which we've been running now for 40 years. So really my life is raising the sheep, making the stuff, selling the stuff. And those are the three aspects of my involvement in the sheep industry.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Julia. And so just a little bit of background on how we got to the episode today. I've been working with the this sheep industry for about a dozen years now. And um, I still remember the late Dan Ferguson coming into the office one day and talking about, you know, how we need to add value to our, our wool. It's been basically a byproduct since post-World War II, not a lot of value, how do we do it? And when I look at folks like you um, taking the initiative uh, at not necessarily even a small scale to add value for your farms and your neighboring farms, By processing that wool and turning it into fibers and further fabricated products, I I think is fantastic. So I want to start by thanking you all just by taking that initiative and working with folks like you to do that. So you all kind of talked about something that is something we ask ourselves all the time. And it's about how to add that value that we just talked about. So you, you all are in the processing of the wool and turning it from taking it from the sheep into the consumer's hands. What does that process look like? And then maybe Patricia, if you can add it on too about using other raw materials and turning it into fiber, that would be fantastic as well.
2: Well, Brad, that is a, another whole podcast question right there <laughs> so on our firm what we're doing is adding value to both wool and to flax and so since uh, Delia and Ruth are here i'll talk about ba- adding value to flax uh, so a bunch of years ago wanted to grow clothes and decided that flax is something that we all know we all know linen and we maybe many of us maybe have linen clothing now in our closets and so so I thought it's a, it's a pretty natural leap to go from like a cotton to a linen. And so since we can grow flax here, decided to, to dive in to flax production. But it is a multi-step process. So in order for us to have really high quality fiber, um, we have to have really high quality flax. A plants, So the plants have to be really healthy and the fiber has to be really in good shape in that plant before we even start the harvest and the processing. If we don't have good fiber, then like in the plant, when it's growing, then, you know, it's there's very little we can do throughout the process to create that really high quality product. So getting really good at learning how to grow flax for fiber. And on our farm, we're specifically focusing on the long fiber. So it's really important to us that we get nice tall plants because we want to maintain that length through the whole entire process, because we want to make yarn with extremely long fiber. So once, um, you know, once it's time to harvest, we pull the plant out of the ground and we lay it down and we, um, when we pull it out of the ground and lay it down, we keep it all lined up. So all the roots stay together and all the tops stay together and we make these long rows. And we do that because in order to maintain the, that nice, beautiful, long length of the fiber and not to have everything get all knotted and messy, we have to keep it all aligned. parallel so we do that and then we leave it out in the field for a couple weeks to do something called retting so that the fiber can be released from the rest of the plant material Um, after it's retted then we bring it in out of the field after about yeah 10 days to two weeks and uh, we can store it until we're ready to process it and processing for flax involves breaking the stalk scutching more of the stalk off the fiber hackling which is like a combing process Um, and then after after you get it combed and it's nice and clean and beautiful, then you overlap all the fibers and draw them out and then you can spin them. But on our farm, we don't actually have the machine yet to spin those long fibers. So we collect all the waste from the first three steps, the breaking, sketching, and hackling. And we further clean that fiber and we're able to spin that because it's shorter. And we have a spinning system on our farm to short to spin shorter fibers. So we then card the fiber, draw it out, spin it. Then um, after you spin, then you wash the fiber. And then if you're going to dye it, you can dye it either before you card it, or you can dye it after it's already made into yarn, either way. And then it is sent to the weaver or the knitter, and then it gets woven. In our case, we usually work with uh, weavers to have things woven. And then you have a piece of fabric that also then has to get washed. It's called finishing, checked for any any breaks um, and get those fixed up and then uh, turned into whatever final product you want. Just a few steps.
3: <laughs> People don't appreciate just how much work goes into something like a garment that's gone through the process from the field to being sold, really, do they?
0: Yeah, That's exactly it, Delia. I'm I'm sitting here listening to Patricia and all of the work that she's talking about and that's just a small part of her overall farm operation and her life and I'm thinking about my linen shirt in the closet I'm going holy lifting like this is this is a lot of process and I guess you know the same as my wool socks and my grandmother knits. like the amount of effort you folks put in to not only producing and getting the fiber ready but the artisan work to actually turn it into a wearable garment in both of those cases is absolutely astounding.
2: Yeah, it's a ton of work, and um, it's been a huge eye-opener, that's for sure. I had no idea, and even after I was a couple of years in, I still really didn't have any idea. <laughs> so now, you know, 10 years later, it's like, okay.
3: <laughs> Producers are people. We all have different skills. So some people are really good at marketing. Some people are really good artists, and some and not so good at marketing, so they need somewhere to market. Some people raising wool sheep might only be, well not only, but breeding uh, wool breeds and selling breeding stock. So there's several different avenues you can choose. So you can sell the breeding stock, uh, you can sell really good fleeces, take care of them, have them coated, make sure your feeders aren't putting hay into the fleeces, have a good shearer who doesn't do lots of second cuts and store it properly, you know, there's that section. Then if you've got the skills to make things, be able to make a quality product that you can sell. There's Etsy, there's lots of markets, there's farmers markets, or like in my case, a cooperative, which is really a good way to sell and set up a shop. We don't just sell wool products, we sell high-end crafts of all sorts, a lot of pottery and and woodwork and everything, anything you can think of, um, mostly maritime stuff. So then there's that. And some other people might be really good at marketing and buy other people's products, like raw wool, and be able to turn it into something because they don't want to have all the sheep or a lot of sheep. So there are several different ways of being able to do value added. for
0: wool. In upcoming events, the Atlantic Alliance production sale will occur on October 22nd in Nopan. Follow their Facebook page for more information. The Maritime Beef Conference will take place on October 21st and 22nd at the Delta Hotels by Marriott, Bolshejour, and Moncton. Stay updated on registration information at maritimebeef.ca. The 2022 Nova Scotia Minister's Conference for Agriculture will occur on November 3rd and 4th in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Register for the conference at perennia.ca forward slash agri conference. The second annual sheep industry conference will take place on November 25th and 26th in New Nova Scotia. Register for the conference at nssheep.ca. The Maritime Beef Testing Society will be accepting consignment applications until October 14th for intake, on October 28th and 29th. For more information and consignment forms, please visit maritimebeefteststation.ca. Feeder sales will occur this fall on select Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Additionally, there will be a breeding stock sale on October 29th. Please check AtlanticStockyards.com for a full sale schedule and booking information. In programs, the Nova Scotia Cattle Producers have two programs available for 2022, the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program, and the Nova Scotia Soil, Pasture, and Forage Management Program. Both programs have application deadlines of November 30th Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. There are many Nova Scotia programs over 2022, such as the Cattle and Sheep Industry Development Program and Wildlife Mitigation Program. For a complete list of programs, as well as application and guidelines, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. New Brunswick, of Cattle producers have multiple programs available, including the Beef Herd Renewal and Improvement Program and Beef Rotational Grazing Initiative, and many more for information on programs, please visit gnb.ca forward slash agriculture. So I'm I'm just going to back up a step before we get back into the marketing side of it. And Ruth, I I know you're more focused on the wool processing side. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of what that processing looks at Harmony Wool & Millet up here in Brookside, just down from the office, actually?
1: So the people bring the fiber to me or sometimes I pick it up and it consists of taking a look in the bag and seeing what kind of shape the fiber is in. There are... Some bags, you just open them up and they're full of vegetation and there's just, you can't do anything with it. There are so many uses for wool. So for example, if you wanted to put it as a mulch around your garden or you wanted to put it to clean up oil spills or that kind of thing, it's either very felted. So it might've been on the sheep for a little bit too long. You know, sometimes it's difficult to get shears and so many farmers with just a few sheep and two little shears. Anyway, sometimes you just can't process the fiber that they bring you. And sometimes you look at the fiber and you you just think you're in heaven and you want to do it right away. Um, So you look at the fiber and then you weigh it because in the process, most wolves, you'll lose between 40 and 60% in the process. And a lot of that is with alpaca. That might be because they're incredibly dusty. They like to roll in the dust, but they don't have any lanolin. And with sheep, some breeds have more lanolin than others, which can be incredibly heavy. So just in the washing process, you can lose um, quite a large percentage. And you you don't want to strip all the lanolin out because it'll feel dead if you do that. You want to have a little bit of life. It'll make it easier to spin. It'll be a, a softer, more um, drapey fabric once once it's knit up or woven up so it gets washed uh, sorry it gets tumbled which is like a bingo machine that pulls the fibers apart and a lot of the vegetation and the short clips that Daly was referring to which is when the shearer goes over it and then goes over it again to make a clean look on the sheep those part, bits fall out then it goes into the washing machine and I've got a specialized Belfast mini mill washing machine um, but I think Patricia you do it by hand in a series of sinks. So. Um, There's various ways that you can wash. Can then it goes on drying racks and through a picker, which pull it's kind of clumpy when it's finished drying. So the picker pulls it all apart, and that makes it easier for when it goes through the carter being the next stage. And that's a very large machine. It's kind of the heart of the mill, although you wouldn't be able to use it if you didn't have the other pieces. And that lines up all the fibers. So coming out the other end, you either have roving, which is like a long continuous strand. And that is what people use for, often for spinning, or it makes it easy to use other, do other crafts like dryer balls, et cetera. Or it can roll on a drum and that will produce a bat, which is what I use in my comforters or for making felt on the wet felting machine or needle felting machine, or it can produce core yarn. Uh, My mill is really small. And so I don't have the ability to make like a single ply or a two ply yarn, but I can make a chunky yarn on my carding machine. And from there, it depends on if the person would like felt. So uh, there's a lot of insoles that are made out of felt these days, and those are a wonderful way to use the lesser quality of the fiber. So let's say the part along the side, sometimes you get a lot of uh, vegetation across the back, as Delia was mentioning, in the feeding bunk. So if there's no hay there, then it's along the back and along the sides. The part around the neck and the part around the rump, those tend to be not as good quality. And so those are the ones that go into the core yarn or the felt.
0: Excellent. And another very long, complicated process. <laughs> so it, how long does it take? If I drop off a bag of wool to you in Brookside today, when do I pick up my bag or spool of yarn or my felted product that I'm then going to spin? What What's that? length of time process looks like?
1: Well, unfortunately it's quite long. The mill is small and so it's myself and usually one other person. There are, this is a working farm and so there are many things to do. So you might be looking at eight to 12 months. And so I do have a waiting list, so I have to go in order. So even if you drop off one bag, unless I can slide it in, say I'm doing a run of white wool or dark wool, if unless I can slide it in, the weight is
0: significant. Maybe, I don't I, I'm not sure if you're going to answer a question I'm going to ask, but answer yours too. So with the flax, that my guess is you have a lot more product all coming at the same time. You're probably harvesting the entire crop at the same time. You've mentioned that it's stored. So how does that process or length of time differ or be the same based on just the influx of product you're getting from mid to late August?
2: Yeah, so well with the flax because it can be stored, then we can be processing it in what we call the primary processing area, um, you know, year round, and that's where we're breaking, scutching, hackling, and then further cleaning the fiber with some of the same equipment that Ruth was talking about—the tumbler, the picker—and we're actually using something called a separator or a dehairer as well to help further clean it. But so. That you know that's just year round we're just continually able to process and then send product off to the spinning mill and at the spinning mill we spin quite a lot of wool now actually. All along we wanted to be able to supply wool yarn and then flax yarn for making textiles. Um, and so in the last two years, we've been focusing a little bit more on our wool production because our mill manager, Sarah, really loves wool. And so she gets more joy out of working with it than flax. So therefore we do more wool. Um, but also we wanted to be able to support, you know, other producers who are trying to find a way to value add their product. Like we, in Nova Scotia, we have a huge shortage of infrastructure to be able to create this value. and wool producers have been talking about this for quite a while around just how, like, where can we send our wool to add value? And so there are a few more mills popping up now, and ours being one of them, where we are taking taking a few custom orders and, like, venturing out into the world of providing um, value-added opportunities for other producers. And so it is to answer the question you asked a minute ago, if you dropped off a bag of wool, there's a few factors. Number one is how big is the bag? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you have like a pillowcase, the first thing you have to do is wash that um, pillowcase full of wool. And it takes a couple days in our drying system for it to dry. Now, if we were able to, you know, invest in a faster drying system and that made, you know, sense in the value chain, then that would speed that up quite a bit, but it doesn't actually make sense to invest a whole lot of money in a drying system. It makes sense to sort of wash, then wait a few days and be working on something else and then wash and wait a few days and work on something else. So the washing, you know, takes a little bit, but if you dropped off pillowcase full of wool... In theory, you would have yarn at the end of the day, if you could speed up all of the steps of the process, or if you could scrunch them all into like one period of time, but it doesn't work that way. It is, it is a a process where you share tasks among different machines and different stations in the mill for sure. Yeah. So. We also have a long wait list because we are trying to produce our own product and then incorporate other people's products into our system and then not overburden ourselves either. And so um, we're actually saying no more... No more uh, commitments right at the moment until we get caught up, and then we can start taking some more commitments. Because if you start getting a really long wait list, it can feel a little
0: burdensome. Absolutely, and uh, I've probably known you, Trish, for close to 20 years now, and I've never known you to undercommit on anything. So (laughs) that doesn't doesn't surprise me, but always deliver as well. So that's one of the things that I admire about you and Josh and the family there. Just going to switch gears a little bit and. I think, Ruth, you touched on it a little bit before we get back to kind of the artisan stuff. You mentioned about using the wool in more industrial type applications and whether that's insulation, you mentioned compost oil spills. Just wondering what that looks like in How we can enhance those or encourage the use of this sustainable, renewable product in the current world versus traditional materials that we'd be using for stuff like that.
1: Sure. Uh, So I've had a lot of requests for people insulating outbuildings, for example, their sheds or
0: um, there's a lot
1: of legalities and insurance questions around insulating an actual home, but not so much around the outbuildings. But the current hot topic right now are, are wool pellets. And there is a producer, Brookridge Farm, that is producing these pellets. Those are great for in your garden. You can use them just by themselves. They look like a pelleted feed. So you can sprinkle them around your plants. And slugs and snails don't like these pellets, so or wool in general. So I tried it myself with just some old wool that I had and a gooseberry plant that was totally stripped. And well, after I put that down, the gooseberry, all the leaves have started to come back. So sometimes you just need to try it yourself, right? <laughs> so you can't sell something that you don't believe in. Anyway, these wool pellet, they, they've got a lot of nutrients as well. So if you look at the NP and K, it's 902 in terms of value. And so not, not only does it break up the soil, especially if you've got clay soil, these nutrients help feed your plant. And the pellets are made from raw wool. So it's a machine that there's two machines involved one will chop it into sizable chunks and the other machine will make those chunks into pellets. And so you've got if there's a bit of manure tags on there if you've got hay in there it doesn't matter it's just taking the raw product and making these pellets so I think Alberta is investing quite a lot of money in this I've heard of other companies kind of looking into seeing this the machines are made out of Europe I think and there might be one out of the states yeah there's a lady in Manitoba that's that's doing this but it's especially for patio plants and that kind of thing you can mix a little bit of water with it and you'll get the nutrients as well as uh, keeping the slugs away and I think we all know that slugs well slugs are a huge problem everybody that I've talked to about these they're like oh okay I'll take a bag just because of the slugs that is the hottest thing but it's so undervalued it's crazy all of the things they can do in the UK they're even making um, like wool packaging you know the paper envelopes that you can mail things in and there's usually bubble wrap in the middle well they're using wool felt as a material there <laughs> I could go on and on and on <laughs>
0: Yeah. And again, I I know it's wool is a very versatile product. And I know even early on in the COVID days, uh, there was some work being done at Mount St. Vincent, I believe, around using wool in filters and N95 masks and so on. I think you said it's undervalued. Uh, Some of the processing is incredibly time consuming and expensive to get set up to do it. So How is it that we can maximize our people resources, our time resources and our money resources to make the product more available for all the things it's actually useful for versus putting it in the manure pile or in the compost or the mm-hmm. landfill. And that's the constant conversation we have is making it usable because till World War Two, it was a primary functioning fiber in the Northern Hemisphere. That's so true.
1: Great in your garden and that sort of thing. But It could really plug up your rototiller or your tractor equipment unless you have it well composted first. And it does decompose, but it's going to take you a year or two to do that. So that's not always ideal. But the wool pellets, just having a raw product that you can just then chop. I did see where you can actually, you know, sometimes you have pathways through like hiking is so big in Nova Scotia, but sometimes the trails break down a little bit and they might get a lot of runoff through them. Well, wool is also good for that too, because what it does, it's like dryer balls. It absorbs the the moisture and then wicks it away. So it kind of does the same thing with your trails, and they use that a lot in in the UK as another one. Another one would possibly be um, landscape barrier, possibly using it instead of straw to hold, A, to hold the bank and also to keep the weeds down while you're trying to grow something.
2: Yeah, it's quite fascinating how many items that we that we need in our everyday lives that we could be getting from these products that we actually have here in Nova Scotia. And we just never even think about it, like insulation. And in the flax world, um, there's a lot of work that's being done on like, like flax panels and like flaxcrete to build like structures and supports and insulation and... You know, just even like to build instead of a chipboard shelving unit, a flax board shelving unit, that kind of thing. And so for me, when I started going down this road and then even and also like with wool, it's just overwhelming how we don't have the scale of industry to be able to like do something with each, with each part. So then it sort of lands like on an individual or a few individuals to try to figure out how to value add like every single part of this whole entire product, where really we need sort of like teams (laughs) to take on like different pieces, because I would really love to use wool pellets in our agricultural production. And like to have the research done around, have the pellets be acknowledged as, as an input um, so that we can just have them be a part of the system. And then so have like Nova Scotia waste wool like being re- like, put back into the soil in Nova Scotia. Like that's just really great stuff. And the same thing with flax. You can make flax pellets to burn, to burn in pellet stoves, you know, really high heat. So all that kind of stuff, there's just so much potential and so many ways that we could be creating like employment opportunities and R&D opportunities and new product design. It's just, it's exciting.
0: Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited.
1: Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits, and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates, and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com.
0: For the weekend at October 7th, 2022, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was $2.46 per kilogram, down one cent from last week. In Ontario, base price was down one cent from last week to a price of $2.37 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was $2.08 per kilogram, up 2.4 cents from last week. On the fed cattle side, beef cattle prices at Atlantic Beef Products sits at $2.96 on the rail, flat from last week. And Ontario Live Steer sold for $1.79, moving down two cents from last week. Call Atlantic stockyards sold for 90 cents, a downward change of seven cents from last week. While rail price Atlantic beef products was flat at $1.92. Calls in Ontario averaged $1.01, 1, up two cents from the prior week, and 86 cents Quebec moving down three cents. Good dairy bob calves and 920 pounds Atlantic stockyards averaged $70, up $26, and good dairy beef bob calves averaged 188, down 76 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were down 15 cents to a price of $1.53 per pound. And calves in Quebec were 272, a drop of nine cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland lamb is $11 per kilogram. A mutton sits at $6.50 per kilogram. 50 to 64 pound lambs in Atlantic stockyards average 238 at 58 pounds. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average 245 at 59 pounds, and 65 to 79 pound lambs in Ontario average 250 at 73 pounds. Ontario use average $1.30 and a half at 148 pounds and range from 62 cents a half cents to $1.95. Make sure you check your association's website for additional pricing information. <laughs> so I'm going to switch gears back to more the artisan side a little bit because I consider myself a fairly regular consumer or normal consumer, I guess. So the majority of places I see wool are at you know, the Christmas craft market, farmer's market, boutique shops, gift shops, stuff like that. Can we explore what that looks like in Nova Scotia? I know Ruth, you and actually all of you have done a lot of work on the local fiber love and Sisterhood Fibers and all these great connective groups. Can you talk about how you're working together to promote wool and other fibers in that community?
3: Delia, do you want to start that one? In my store, you know, we all have our little niche. So someone's a potter someone's a this someone's a that so my wool is strictly my product although when I used to have a lot of sheep I would employ knitters and well mostly knitters to help uh, with my inventory although there is certainly as a network I meet a lot of people through the store and they come by and for sure anytime anyone needs help oh how do you do this how to do that certainly I will pass this along to anyone who's interested and it was really fun having Ruth and Sam to teach <laughs> yeah. just before COVID and it's, it's really important to pass along all this knowledge because I've been doing it for a long time and there's a lot of different skills I have that really need to be passed on. So we do need to, we do need to work cooperatively in that respect for sure. Delia, you also work with opulent alpaca and good vibrations in um yeah, in Fredericton. Yes, I do. I weave opulent alpaca has a mill and they mostly alpaca. Barry has 60 alpacas, so he's doing a a high-end product and will only take really good wool if he is using wool because he's on on a very high-end streak. Um, so I weave blankets for him, and in return I get yarn process. So it, it works really well. I give him my lambswool. I can't add our Wensdale full fleece. It's weight. It's too long. It can be eight to twelve inches, and mills can't use that. So that's what I use for hand spinning or selling to spinners. And the um, the lambswool can go through machinery actually you've done some haven't you (laughs) yes for roving so get roost on rovings and core yarn which is really a nice product too
2: i just remembered i forgot to mention paper flax makes paper and when it comes to creating these products and building awareness and then trying, you know, getting things to market and working together to, to share the story, um, definitely paper is an exciting one. There's um, an artist, designer, uh, flax grower, Christy Ferrier in Cape Breton, who has all the equipment and studio and is making flax paper. She's made some flax paper from our flax, and now she's growing her own flax to make flax paper with. So it's just exciting, all the different possibilities. In terms of partnerships and working together, I have been part of this community for a fairly short period of time. And I'm really thankful that that Ruth and Delia and everyone else have been welcoming. Because <laughs> of course, it's also a small community of people that take the time to try to figure out like how to work together to move things forward. So a huge piece of work that I understand really, Ruth really spearheaded around the local fiber love and creating a sort of a resource for consumers to be able to, to find f- local uh, fibers, but also for people who are in the industry to find each other. There's also um, the fiber shed movement, which in various little ways, Nova Scotia has been trying to participate in, but also, you know, few people and a small amount of energy to go around for everyone. But that's another another sort of initiative that is gaining sort of global awareness around a movement around fiber that we're able to sort of hang on to as well here in our region and then just there's some different regions in the province who've been making um, maps like fiber trail maps and you know building a collective of people to to tell a story Um, but for sure um, being able to like tell the story and to take you know to share with a person like you Brad who identifies as like a normal consumer, like how their normal can shift to more local fiber. Like, that's a really hard job. Like, how could we get it? So that sweatshirt you're wearing, um, you know, that has Titan on it is like made out of fibers that were grown here in this province. Um, And that that is a really big undertaking because it requires, you know, enough product and enough um, people to be making those products. But then also, enough cash resources to pay um, people fairly for the work that they do do and that's one of the hugest problems that we have in the textile um, industry I think is that almost all of our textiles are coming from places where people and practices are not um, not not up to par there they we don't actually agree with um, paying people very very small amounts of money and we don't agree with, some practices that are like detrimental to our earth. And so we, you know, as citizens of the planet, we wanna make different choices, but the fact of the matter is those different choices are really expensive. And we're not quite there yet in people making that change so that, yeah, so that we have more of it available in our province, I guess.
1: I'd just like to add to that. I know when I set up the mill, there was a lot of discussion about the wastewater being used. And so I actually put in my own septic and there's different one, company said it's awful and the other company said no it's okay so even within the egg industry there's there's variances but just on another note I would be remiss to mention that there's a in Digby there's a Fundy fiber mill and so I I'm not sure of the operating hours but there is one there and they seem to service that end of the Nova Scotia and I think all of us the three of us that I know what we well, I think I know what we do and, and who our consumers are. We've got pretty good coverage of, we all have various strengths is what I'm trying to say. So there's a lot available. And if we can't help a customer, I think we're happy to send to another person that's either closer or has availability in their machinery or whatever it is. I think we work. And I think that goes for all fiber producers no matter what they are that we all work together really well so and there's more interest from the consumers so I think the the whole industry is just growing leaps and bounds right now I'd just like to
3: add that I don't know if it's quite on the topic I was saying right now but I think in the last few years of well last many years probably 10 15 we've really seen people who are buying products stuck on this merino game and this is the biggest thing that's against our industry. For a start, there can't possibly be that much merino in the world to supply the world with merino. It's got to be something else or other breeds. But a lot of it is our own problem and our own doing because the thing is you can buy these beautiful dyed merino braids, they're called, where that's all carded and dyed and, and people don't have to touch smelly wool or do anything to it. They just sit there and spin this fine yarn that you might as well buy in the store and not do anything else. A lot of it is because we haven't been good enough at keeping our own wool clean and sellable. People, Marilyn, Rand and I have tried for years and years to educate people of what a clean fleece is and you too who have the mills must really see this people bring this word, oh this is lovely and this like why would you put that through your mill it's going to ruin your mill it's going to clog up everything and I think we have to go right down to the grassroots and make sure that people know what a good fleece is if it means coaching your, fle- your sheep coat your sheep. It's not a big deal. If Depending on on the way that you keep your sheep, because I find mine feeding round bales, they all run under the round bales and you know, what a mess. But I think there's our big problem is we have to go right to the beginning and make sure people are aware of what a nice yeah and a local fleece can make if it's looked after and kept clean and we can get more money for it i mean people we don't need people to buy merino all the time that's my butt. merino is my (laughs) bug.
0: ruth i know you've brought that up in in several conversations you know it spans annual meetings at some of the producer meetings we've had at workshops at your wool collection with ccwg So how do we actually get that message out? Because that was actually one of my speaking points I wanted to cover is what can and what should producers do to make sure that they're providing mills or more industrial buyers or big lot buyers with the best quality wool they can because we know that there's value there, right? Better wool gets a better price. And those who don't get a good price are probably not providing the best wool they can. So how do we do that? How do we get that message out? I know, Ruth, you mentioned that we don't have a lot of shears. Is that where we start? Do we need to just get everybody in a room and lock them there until they promise to provide good wool? How do we do it?
3: You do some really good workshops. Organise lots of workshops all over the place. That's really, I think people have to see it to show, see, oh, yeah, that wasn't a good fleece that I thought was a good fleece. This is a good fleece. So I think I find when I read the ag uh, letters that come around, everything for the agriculture is all about safety or something that really is pretty obvious if you think about it but you know really we need to go more down to the grassroots and
1: teach people this and it will be really good to have some workshops. On that note I know that you're having a workshop in November is that right Brad?
0: That's right that was going to be my wrap-up conversation but let's talk about it right now.
1: Perfect because what I would like to see happen is you're going to have a lot of interested people in that room and what i'd like to see happen and i hope you don't mind but i was already talking to people about this jackie while and sisterhood is if they can bring good quality fleeces and some finished products so the people in the room if there's any producers there they can see what it is that they need to produce because as delia said well you don't know what you don't know so if you think you're producing an okay fleece and it's if you take it to a mill and it's really not very good then you don't know that unless somebody tells you, or you get your check back from wool growers or some other place, for example. So yeah, if we can show them what good wool is and what beautiful products and money reward they can, or whatever reward they can get back from that, that'd be ideal.
0: Yeah, and, and that's definitely it. And when we started thinking about the theme for this year's conference, quickly went to marketing. And then beyond that, we said, well, we, we don't talk about wool as a, as the whole industry enough. So I think that the committee and, and Amy and Ashley here in the office have put together a couple of really good sessions that focus on kind of the industrial uh, processing of the wool. And you're right, we've got Lee Little and Monica McAusland coming to that. Uh, and then we want to talk about a little bit about the boutique and kind of specialized marketing as well. So we've got Lorna Ash and Delia and Jackie Weil there. So really looking forward to that, and and hopefully that takes that message to the more commercial meat, larger flock producers about how important and and what they can do to make your life easier and provide more value back to them.
1: But then talk can be cheap, pardon the pun. So
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, if, absolutely.
1: So you really need to see. Yeah. In my world, I'm a visual person, yeah. so I really think it's so much easier to understand. But it's I'm excited about the, the seminars that you're
0: doing. So we're getting close to wrapping up here. I, this has been a great conversation. I think Delia said at the very beginning that we would probably could talk a long time. We are going to be releasing this, this episode just prior to the conference registration deadline. So we want to make sure everybody gets keyed up for it. How do our listeners find out more about you and what you do and how to connect with you?
1: My uh, farm and wool business is Woolies of Upper Brook Farm and yeah so Ruth at Woolies, W-O-O-L-I-E.ca is me and Woolies of Upper Brook Farm on Facebook as well as Harmony Woolen Mill, H-A-R-M-E-N-Y, the name of our house in Scotland and then on Instagram it's Woolies N-S.
2: Um, I am Patricia at is my email, but you can follow us on all of the, the socials at Taproot Fiber. So, or Taproot Fiber on Facebook and Taproot Fiber on Instagram. And I think that's all the socials we have.
3: <laughs> my email is Cobweb Woolies with two L's at seasidehighspeed.com, which is very long. Uh, I have a Cobweb Woolies also has a Facebook page. Uh, Water Street Studio Cooperative has a Facebook page and I'm you can contact me there anytime.
0: Excellent. And and of course, we also want to drive people to the localfiberlove.ca website as well. This is originally, as everybody said, uh, originally driven by Ruth and was supported through the Wool Marketing Fund here in Nova Scotia.
1: Oh, um, I'm also remiss talking about NESCAD, the oh, yes. the project last year where they Jennifer Green, the associate professor, assistant professor at Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, had five farms and it was a class, so she had students go around and interview, take photos, and discuss wool with these various locations across the province. And they actually did up a, a little map, they did up descriptions of sheep, and this is all information that will be posted on Local Fiber Love and potentially Span's website, or at least the link. So that's going to be kind of like the fiber shed you were discussing, Patricia, but on a much smaller scale.
0: Excellent. Well, with that, I want to thank you all very much for taking your afternoon with us today. We look forward to seeing you at the conference on November 25th and 26th in New
3: Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Thanks, Brad.
2: Don't want to miss any future episodes. Subscribe to a Maritime AgCast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform.
0: This concludes another episode of Maritime AgCast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of ArchesAudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.